This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. On this week's Money and Markets podcast, we've got a real mixed bag, including why UK property stocks like British Land are under pressure, differing fortunes for retailers from Next to H&M, and the end of the Hollywood writers' strike. With me this week, AJ Bell's Head of Retirement Policy, Tom Selby. Hi, Tom. Hi, Danny. Yes, I'm back and glad to be back with another Pensions Corner, this one about salary sacrifice schemes. Plus, I'll have an update on rumours around ISA simplification and ISA reform, which are reportedly being considered by the government. I use the word reportedly there advisedly. Plus, the rebound in China's economy post-COVID has rather failed to live up to expectations and government stimulus measures don't appear to be having an awful lot of effect. To make sense of what's going on in the country, Pruksa Iam Tongtong from Asia Dragon Trust joins us on the show to explain what she's seeing and what investors need to think about. Loads for us to get our teeth into then, and I guess we need to kick off with interest rates because the latest decision by the the Fed and the Bank of England came after the last episode of the podcast came out. And it's fair to say the pound has taken something of a battering, hasn't it, Danny? Yeah, it really has. Um, It's on track, actually, for the worst month since the Trust mini budget. And I can't believe that's a year ago. Quite incredible, isn't it, to think of what we were saying when that mini budget came out and the impact that it has had that we are still dealing with. Um, But it's down to uh, 121 against the dollar uh, as we record this. Now, of course, that's nowhere near the 114 from last year, but still, it's pretty low, uh, especially when you consider that the pound's actually outperformed major currencies since the start of the year, but it's down 3.4% so far this month. Basically, what's happened is traders have unwound their forecasts on the Bank of England being the most forceful central bank in the developed world because inflation's fallen faster than expected. I mean, what did you think when you saw the Bank of England's announcement on interest rates? Some people were caught on the hop, but after those inflation numbers, it, it kind of made sense to hold firm. Yeah, I think we'd, 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 we'd seen the, the odds ahead of that announcement moved to 50-50. So actually, it was, it was quite surprising. I think people had got into a mindset of assuming we were going to get a rate rise. And so the headlines afterwards were talking about it being a shock that they'd held rates. But actually, as I say before, and I think market makers were thinking this was about a 50-50 decision. And in the in the event, they decided to to hold them. And I don't think that was particularly surprising, given the data that we saw. No, absolutely. I mean, Dan and I were talking last week and we were saying, Mm. yeah, it looks like 50-50. It had seemed nailed on. Mm. Now we're just not quite sure because the picture's pretty murky and there'd already been quite a lot ahead of time from different members of the Monetary Policy Committee suggesting that that meeting was going to be pretty spiky. And now the expectation is, instead of interest rates peaking at 6.5%, now it's somewhere between 525 and 5.5%. So that's the largest decline that we've seen among developed economies. While at the same time, what we've got with the Fed's lot of rate setters who also left interest rates unchanged, 
still saying that there is the potential that one more rise might be needed. So the dollar is really in control. And I think it's really important to note that it's not just the pound that slid to a sixth month low against the dollar. The euro is also looking pretty weak. Can you believe there was almost a a decade there where we barely talked about interest rates and inflation? (laughs) It seems like a completely different world now, doesn't it? Every single monetary policy committee meeting feels like a massive, massive event. That wasn't the case for a long, long time. Um, Sticking with markets then, property stocks have been under a bit of pressure as well, haven't they? Yeah, they have. Um, so actually, what we've seen today uh, comes off, to some, off the back of some news yesterday, but shares in four of the UK's biggest property companies um, have fallen quite considerably as we record this. Uh, British Land down almost 2%, Derwent London, uh, 1.5% down, Great Portland, 3.5% down, Land Securities just over 2% um, lower Um And that follows uh, analysts at investment bank Jefferies cutting recommendations, basically saying that they expect that office rents in the capital are heading for recession. And and the numbers kind of bear that out because they were saying, look, vacancies are now at a 30-year high. Um, And historically, things look very different to to how they were historically. So we've seen... uh, a huge contraction in the amount of office space that that's being used that is needed because more and more people are deciding that they're going to go for this hybrid working so people working from home part of the time working from the office part of the time and that means that what they want from an office is completely being turned on its head so a lot more sort of breakout zones areas where people can really enjoy spending time with each other and bouncing ideas off each other. But it follows an announcement uh, which captured headlines right across all the newspapers this morning from Meta. Um, And British Land announced this saying that Meta had paid it £149 million. That's a record amount to break a lease on a London office, despite the fact that Meta had 18 years left on this lease, which is a huge amount, isn't it? I mean, it just sort of goes to show that if you think about it, Meta's workers, they're going to be dealing with people right around the world. So if you're having a conference call, it's probably as easy to do it, if not easier to do it from home than it is to do it from an office. Because, I mean, a conference call in an office with people outside the office, we've done it. It's not great, is it? Yeah, not ideal, not ideal. A huge sunk cost there for Meta, though, but I guess it's it's big enough to wear those kind of costs. Now, Danny, we've had a fair few results recently from different companies, not least from the retail sector. So what are things looking like on the high street? Well, this is quite fascinating because it is very much a tale of two cities. Okay, so on the one hand, Next has done it again, raised four-year profit guidance for the third time this year. I mean, this is a company that's just got all of its ducks in a row. It's omni-channel retail. It's giving the customer what it wants in a way that it wants it at a price that it wants to pay. The sun is also shining at JD Sports. So Next has said that it was helped by sunny weather in June and July. Keep that in mind. I'll come back to that. 
JD Sports saying that uh, it's going to post high annual profits because demand for premium leisure wear is pushing sales higher. Lots of people getting out and about over the summer, enjoying the weather, running, playing sports, etc. However, H&M blamed the weather for the fact that its sales (laughs) are down 10%. Um, Now, you've got to think that H&M is Europe-wide. And let's be fair, Europe has had ridiculously unseasonable Mm. weather. The UK too, but crazy hot. And uh, I don't know about you, but with September's sort of mini heat wave, did you go back to T-shirts and things, stick the winter coats back in the wardrobe? Well, I think that we we had that we had the fan on far too much in September. I mean, it was pretty pretty painful in in August, and I was I could barely bring myself to look at my smart meter to see how much it was costing. But it went on into September. I, I pulled I pulled the plug around the middle of September because I just couldn't couldn't face the cost. But yeah, it's been far far too warm for uh, for a northerner like me. But that's where H and M, I think, have had an issue because it, it stuck its next season into the stores Q three, thinking people were going to be buying jumpers and coats, and of mm. course, it was just too hot. People were just like, you know, I'm sticking with my t shirts for now. So off the back of that, it, it did have sales dragged down considerably. And ASOS has been in the same boat, but instead of the warm weather, ASOS has blamed the wet weather for hitting sales and profits. So it said that wet weather here in the UK in July and August um, dragged sales down 15% in the final quarter of its financial year. Now, the weather plays a big part in our decision-making process. If it's raining and we don't have a raincoat, sure, we'll go and buy a raincoat. If it's sunny and we discover that our T-shirts don't fit our kids anymore, sure, we'll go off and buy T-shirts. But there are bigger issues at play here, not just for ASOS, which has really struggled with customer retention. It's lost 2.3 million customers in the last year. It has changed focus. It is now focusing on boosting profits rather than sales. But there are big question marks about how quickly this turnaround is going to happen. And sure, the economic landscape's not great. And if you're in the middle of a turnaround, that is not going to help. And H&M similarly have come under huge pressure. So they've started charging for returns. A lot of companies are now doing that. But at the conference call this morning, the boss was pinned on its sizing because social media has been full of people complaining about being charged £1.95 for sending stuff back, saying, look, it's not that we're ordering too much stuff or we're ordering and we never intended to keep stuff. It's that we want this pair of trousers but we've no idea what size is going to fit us because your sizes are all over the place. So we have to order an 8, a 10 and a 12 just in case the wrong size is actually the right size. So uh, Helena Helmerson, who is the H&M boss, said, look, we are taking proactive steps to ensure that whatever customers buy, they want to keep. But it is something it's going to have to work on. So a real mixed bag there then. So one one bit of Significant news dominating the headlines as we record this on Wednesday lunchtime is the news that a new oil field in the North Sea has been given the go-ahead. So, Danny, can you tell us exactly what's going on there? Yeah, this is Rosebank, and um, it's uh, the biggest 
untapped oil and gas reserve thought to be left in the North Sea. And it it has effectively been given the green light by regulators. It sits about 80 miles west of Shetland. And the expectation is that over 300 million barrels of oil and a chunk of gas as well uh, will be able to be extracted from that and help the UK with its energy security, create jobs, also um, add to the tax take for um, the exchequer. But there are a couple of things here. First of all, there are an awful lot of tax breaks. Second of all, all the oil and gas will have to be sold onto international markets, so go to the highest bidder. You've also clearly got a lot of questions about the government's commitment to its net zero plans. Now, the government says, look, we need to max out what's left because we are still going to need oil and gas going forward. You know, there's been a huge debate about how much it's going to cost people who've got gas boilers to transition to hydrogen or heat pumps or whatever. But it does raise questions which has sort of also started to impact investment decisions that people are making. Now, you won't be surprised to learn that uh, Ithaca, which um, owns a 20% stake in this business, has seen its shares jump to the top of the FTSE 250 today. 80% is owned by a Norwegian company. So, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens with other oil and gas projects going forward, because there has been warning that if any new projects get the green light, that that would impact our ability to hit that 1.5 degree target that we've been hearing so much about over the last couple of years. Okay, one to keep an eye on there. And rounding things up for Markets News, now this is a good one, the Hollywood writers' strike is over. So, so Danny, does this now mean that there's going to be something other than Barbie on at the cinema? <laughs> have you seen Barbie? I have, yes. And I was, I was, I'm fairly sure it would have finished its run at the cinema had the writers' strike not been on. I was told by someone at our local cinema that that was the reason that they'd kept Barbie on for quite so long because there were just no new films coming off the Hollywood tap. Well, I think that the slate for what's due to hit cinemas is is pretty set out because mm. you've got to remember that they were filmed and they were put together and they were ready to go uh, way ahead of this period of time. But they want to be able to give it the big bang when things are released. And of course, although the writer's strike has ended, the actor's strike is still Mm. going on. So uh, I think those big red carpet moments, um, they're still a long way off. But production of a whole load of huge US shows can now get going again. So things like Yellow Jackets, Handmaid's Tale, all those late night talk shows where they need writers to write the jokes. They don't just happen. They actually have a room full of people creating this stuff. So those will start to happen again. But first of all, the agreement has only been reached in principle. It's a tentative agreement. So that needs to be signed off. Um, It was all about not those, the people that make the huge amounts of money in Hollywood, It was all about people that make the smaller amounts of money. So they're looking for better wages. They were looking for commitments on streaming and those residual fees. And they were also looking for commitments on guardrails to AI. So uh, only being able to use AI for script writing if there was agreement on that. 
I think that this is potentially still quite a tricky path. They say that um, the Writers Guild of America, whatever deal is finally sort of locked in, is likely to provide a blueprint for the actors um, who are still on strike, as I say, at the moment. But it has had a huge impact, not just on the big players, but also you've got to think about all those smaller companies which form part of this huge network of companies that that basically help get stuff done. So facilities by ADF, Zoo Digital, two small UK companies have really been battered by this for, to different degrees. Um, so, yeah, I think the fact that the strike came to an end at seven o'clock this morning, GMT 7.01, is good news, but I don't think that it is quite the end of things just yet. Okay, another one to keep an eye on. So from Hollywood, almost seamlessly to rumours around ISA reform. But first, let's wind up the market's news with this week's big interview. The news flow out of China has been pretty gloomy, to put it mildly, with concerns about the property sector and worries that the government is struggling to fire up the economy. Dan Coatsworth re- recently met up with Asia Dragon Trust Fund Manager Pruksa Iam Tongtong to find out what's going on. Let's hear what she had to say. So, Pruksa, at the end of 2022, I think everyone seemed to get excited about China relaxing COVID restrictions and and how that might fire up the economy. I think nine months later, um, the economic rebound has certainly failed to live up to expectations. Why do you think this has happened? Yes, hi, Daniel. Thanks for the question. Um, If we take a step back and look at what the main disappointment is, it is really that the recovery in consumer spending has not caught up with expectation. And um, we have been looking at this pretty uh, more closely as well. And you will see that um, what we have observed is that the high frequency data, whether you look at the subway traffic or domestic flight traffic, um, has actually shown that domestic travel are recovering to pre-COVID level. But the disappointment is that spending has not recovered in the same same manner. Um, And this is despite how savings rate have actually increased during COVID period. So what does this point to? This actually points to weak consumer confidence. Um, there's a few reasons for this. This stems from weak property market, which you know would have a wealth effect. Um, there is an uncertainty with regard to policy stability, and this has to be taken into the context that um, there was a post-zero COVID pivot, which we have all agreed that it was um, on the sudden side. And then we also have weak private um, investment. And this one is a result of COVID impact on SMEs, which will take some time to recover, as well as the destocking cycle in some of the consumer electronic cycle. And this is a global effect as well. Um, the other difference for China versus the US is that um, China has refrained from cash handout to directly stimulate the consumption. And therefore, as a result, um, you don't really see a direct uptick in consumption as well versus, say, um, the US. Apart from those issues, I think it's obviously fair to say that China's economic growth is a lot slower than it was a decade ago. Are there other problems as well? Um, I think obviously there's been quite a lot of um, regulatory interference with companies. Is that sort of um, had a negative impact? 
Yes, that has a negative impact and, and we can take that into the context later. But I think um, what's important is that when you look at the slower growth rate that are coming out of China today versus a decade ago, um, we would have to understand that there have been two main changes. Um, the first change is that the size of China economy has changed. So uh, just to give you some numbers, China's economy has almost doubled over the last decade, um, growing from about 8.5 trillion US dollars in 2012 to about 18 trillion dollars in um, 2022 um, and this is according to World Bank's GDP data. So the base has gotten bigger um, and as a result um, growth rate um, is reasonable for growth rate to be slower but I think the second more important aspect is also that the growth model for China has changed over much of the past decade, uh, we would have seen that China's growth model has been pretty much investment and export-led. Um, and that has been very successful as a fast-paced growth model in China. But over the last few years as well, we have seen that the focus um, has changed to make the growth model more balanced towards consumption uh, versus, say, investment and export-led um, in the past, which we all think that it's not sustainable. So I think there has been more um, emphasis on quality of growth rather than quality rather than quantity of growth, which I think is pretty suitable for China's stage of, of development today. But I think um, the shift to slower speed of growth is not without its challenges. You have mentioned um, regulation as one of them. Um, the other one is really about uh, the property market. We have changing demographics as well. Um, so there's a lot of consideration that the Chinese government would have to balance. Um, and perhaps what that means is that there might be a trade-off between short-term growth exuberance versus long-term sustainable level of growth. So um, I think that's the situation that we are in today, but um, we don't think that economic growth has taken a bad seat at all. It is still something very important for China to successfully transform into that goal of a moderately prosperous society by 2035. Um, China needs to grow. Yeah, so, I mean, I think the market seems to have got used to stimulus um, initiatives every time that something goes wrong in the country. But it, it feels like in recent times, these sort of stimulus um, programs seem to be less effective. I'm just wondering if you thought that the, the Chinese government is perhaps trying to um, avoid sort of a boom and bust cycle by, by being a bit more restrained in its response to negative factors. Yes, that's right. And I think um, in the avoidance of the boom and bust cycle, um, what they are overall trying to achieve is a long-term sustainable growth model, which is uh, what I've referred to earlier in terms of uh, emphasis on the quality of growth. Um, but let's take a few steps back um, to understand what the Chinese government has been trying to do over the last few years, which is essentially they have been focusing on cleaning up the unintended consequences from the big stimulus or the uh, big bazooka that we call it that was unleashed in the past when the economy faced a difficult time uh, many years ago. And um, when China was first in and first out COVID versus the rest of the world, um, the government has decided to take this window to first prick the property bubble before it becomes a systematic risk. Um, what they didn't what they try to do then is to basically deleverage the sector. A lot of the debt actually sits in the property developer. They have allowed um, Evergrande to fail. And that is basically that um, what they are trying to do is to introduce proper credit risk pricing to, to the market as well. 
And then they move on to tackle the local government debt piece, which I think we heard about this uh, more recently today, but that is also linked to the property market as um, the local government do get a large part of their income from land sales. So you'll see that this is all linked together, cleaning up the excesses from the past. So that's why if you fast forward to today, um, we have noticed that the stimulus so far have been pretty restrained, um, I would say pretty disciplined as well. And they have um, refrained from a bazooka style type of stimulus. Um, they have adopted what we call a more data dependent approach and more targeted in their stimulus. So this might also mean that we will have a more effective allo capital allocation going forward and trying to avoid, you know, um, undoing some of the cleaning up of excesses that we have been talking about just now as well. So when you put that together, um, I think um, that's why the stimulus action so far have been lower than the market expectation, uh, which we do think is a prudent approach. But on the flip side, that also runs the risk of policies and stimulus being a bit too little, too late. Um, but I think this risk is relatively lower today, given that we have seen uh, a shift in gear and a step up in stimulus since the Politburo in July. And I think since then, we have seen a flurry of policies coming to the property front. Um, how effective it is, I think it's still too early to tell. We probably need to um, observe and see how much of the cumulative effect comes through towards the end of the year or the early next year. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you mentioned about... Um... Obviously, there's issues in the real estate sector. Um, that you know, this this more things like you know, exports are struggling in the country. More than one in five young people are out of work. So it, it does seem that whilst this sort of very interesting long term sort of potential growth opportunities in in China, it's in a difficult situation now. I'm just wondering why would anyone actually want to invest money at the moment in Chinese companies? Yeah, you're right. Um, and I think China is certainly not short of headwinds and it is currently in a pretty challenging situation. So I think um, to your list, um, I would also add geopolitical tension to the list above as well. So I think from a top-down macro perspective, these challenges are real. And I think the weakness is coming through in the data as we speak. Um, but though as you know, as what we have discussed above, the Chinese government does take a data-dependent approach. So in a sense, what this means is that as the poor data comes through, the government does realize how weak the situation is and this prompted them to act more significantly or more aggressively with regard to their policies and more targeted as well. So I think this is pretty important because where we are today is that Chinese government does have policy levers to pull. Um, it's just that they are um, deciding how much they want to pull it and how quickly they want to do it. So I think um, as we are seeing shifting gears on this front post-August, um, I think we can look forward to some of the effects that come through towards the end of the year. The picture is slightly different from a micro uh, perspective. From a micro perspective, I think where we are today is that China has a deep market for stock pickers like us. Um, obviously, what this means is that there are plenty of companies to avoid, but we also believe that if you look hard enough, there are good enough quality companies for us to, to pick from as well. And I think you might be surprised that um, some of these companies are not just local champions, but they are also a global champion in certain places like the energy transition supply chain, for example, where China penetration on this front and the technology on this front is pretty good um, from a global perspective. 
Um, so that's the fundamental picture. But what we are seeing today is that um, the companies are not being rewarded for their fundamentals. And that's really because of the cloudy top-down situation um, that we have touched on. And I think um, we are at the point where investors' confidence in China is really low at the moment. Um, and what this means is that Today, uh, we are seeing good valuation opportunities and we believe that many stocks are perhaps entering uh, what you call an oversold territory. Um, we do need to take a medium and long-term perspective on this though. And as long-term investors, this will allow us to be able to pick some of these quality stocks um, on the cheap side, but then we will have to um, stomach the short-term volatility that comes with the current situation today. and. Um, and I think you can tell from the performance that that has hit our performance um, in the short term as a result. That was Pruksa Iam Tong Tong from Asia Dragon Trust. Okay, Tom, lay it on us. Is this something which is ultimately going to make a Netflix drama? There's been a lot of talk about the need for ISIS simplification, one ISA to rule them all. There you are. I've put in a Hollywood reference for you. Where are we on that? <laughs> Yeah, so there's been lots of rumour and speculation recently across the financial press that, that the Treasury is interested in reform to ISAs. Now, AJ Bell's been a, a big voice in this, pushing for simplification of ISAs. So we, we've done various bits of research with consumers and with financial advisors as well, which suggests that while the ISA as a brand is popular, people are confused by the various different allowances and the various different versions of ISAs that exist as well. So the, the ISA as a concept when it was created in the late 90s, one of the, the key reasons why it took off and why it was so successful was partly because of the tax benefits, but also partly because it was a really simple product that people could understand. But as we've seen with pensions over periods of time, successive governments have intervened. They've created new versions of ISAs with slightly different aims. And what you end up actually is when you step back and you look at it, we've got six different versions of ISAs. It's quite a confusing picture for a new investor who's potentially looking to save for the first time. And so what we think is that the government should have a, an overarching look at the ISA landscape and ideally fold in the best features of those existing ISAs into a single ISA product. So that's what we've been pushing for. And um, the Treasury, apparently, according to some of these reports, has some interest in that idea, which is a positive. We'll have to wait and see um, for the autumn statement, most likely to get some update on exactly where the Treasury's thinking is, although it has said publicly it has interest in reforms around ISAs. Now, at the same time as potentially considering ICE simplification, there are various reports suggesting that the Treasury is considering introducing a new type of ISA. So possible some possible having your cake and eating it there. So there are there are some suggestions that the, the government are interested in a, a GB ISA. So some form of ISA perhaps with a higher allowance than the current £20,000 that would allow people to invest in UK-based companies, potentially UK-based funds. Now, we don't have any of the details about this, about whether there'd be an incentive involved or whether it would just be an extra allowance. But clearly, if we're talking about simplification, then creating a new type of ISA with a new type of allowance is going in the opposite direction. So our hope for the long term is that the government is going to focus on simplification of ISAs, which we think would be a better way to encourage more people to save and invest in companies, not just in the UK, but around the world. 
Just thinking about this GBI, sir, because I know mm-hmm. there's been a lot of focus on trying to get pensions to invest more in UK companies, but it might not necessarily boost GB growth because when you think about all the UK companies, and I'm particularly thinking about the companies on the FTSE 100, a lot of cash is actually made and invested elsewhere. Yeah, that's a really good point. That'll be one of the big challenges for for the government and for the Treasury if they if they decide to go down this road. As you say, FTSE 100 companies in particular are international companies. And so just because you get a bit of extra money into those companies, and of course, we're only talking about ISAs here, so there's absolutely no guarantee that people are going to push money into those companies if they're given the option to voluntarily um, there's then no it's not necessarily going to follow that those companies will put that money to work in the UK they may put it to work in their branches overseas in Asia in Japan in Australia wherever they may be based so just because you get more money into FTSE 100 companies for example doesn't mean the UK economy is going to immediately benefit or indeed benefit at all, so I think what 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 that's a sign of, I suspect, is a a government that's desperate for ways to boost economic growth, and we've seen that through some of the reforms to pensions. But frankly, that doesn't have a huge amount of money to do it, and is looking for any way that it can kick the tires of various different products in order to just do, even if it's just an extra zero point one percent in the economy. I think they're looking at all sorts of different things to do that. But as as I say, I think for the long term benefit of the financial sector and for consumers, its simplification would be a much more sensible route than trying to come up with a quick fix with a different type of ISA because, frankly, we've got enough of them. (laughs) I think it's gearing up to be a really busy autumn statement few days. Um, Last week, you were taking a break, kind of. You were on the road talking to investors, advisors. Maybe that wasn't such a break. But I had to talk about changes to auto-enrolment I promised everyone that you would undoubtedly add your two penneth this week. So before <laughs> Pensions Corner, you must be pretty pleased about the changes. Yes, yeah, a real positive. You did a sterling job, Danny, um, talking through the changes. I, I, I'd agree with everything that um, that you said. I, th- I think the key question, so they've got the government talking about relaxing some of these quite complicated rules around the earnings that your contributions are measured against and also reducing the age at which people are potentially automatically enrolled. So that would be a good thing. It simplifies the system and it potentially means that people will end up with bigger pension pots over time. The the big question around that is going to be when this change is brought into play. So the original report was back in 2017. I think um, obviously if you're going to do something which increases people's automatic enrollment contributions, so saving for retirement, then that's a little bit less money that's going certainly directly into the economy from people spending. You also have the risk during, you know, we've still got pretty high inflation at the moment. If you did this today, you'd potentially have the risk of people opting out of pensions altogether if they saw the amount going into their pension going up by too much. Um, And fundamentally as well, over the longer term, so you've got that difficulty of when do you introduce what is quite a small change to automatic enrolment. And then you've also got the difficulty of how over the longer term do you increase contributions even further, because while 8% of all of your earnings is better than 8% of a chunk of your earnings, it's still probably not going to deliver the retirement outcomes lots of people want, and particularly people who maybe are in their their 40s or or 50s who missed out on the glory years of defined benefit 
pensions and who haven't had the time to build up their defined contribution pots as well. So positive news, but lots and lots of work still to do, I'd say. Well, I've been thinking about this one a lot because um, my daughter turns 17 tomorrow and um, in another year's time, she'll be 18. So potentially the little job that she has, if she can Mm. start paying in from day one, that's one pot. So this is going to mean potentially that people have even more of those little pots that they have to keep track of than they have at the minute. Yep, that's that's right. And that's why the government's reforms to introduce pensions dashboards, so something we've talked about before on on the podcast. So this idea that we, we the government would create a, a place online where you can see all of your retirement pots that you build up across your career, because you're right, that's a problem that's going to build up more and more as people switch jobs. We know that people tend to switch jobs these days a bit more than they used to. So you potentially talk about people building up five, 10, even potentially 15 pension pots across their lifetime. That's clearly not ideal when you're planning for retirement. Much easier to keep track of one pension pot. If you could see them all all online in one place, then that would make it much easier for people to consolidate their pension pot with ideally a good value, low cost provider. So the government said it remains committed to those pensions dashboards. We believe Labour and opposition are committed to them as well, but the timeline does just keep edging back. So that just shows that that's a a reform that that really needs to become a priority. See, I love to get my money's worth, Tom. So we've got Pension (laughs) Corner now. Here's another one. Uh, No name on it. So I'm going to call them Jane. Jane says, I recently joined a new company. They've offered to automatically enrol me in the workplace pension scheme. Hurrah. Using salary sacrifice. What is salary sacrifice? Yeah, really, really good question. And it will be a, a really common thing that new employees will will come up against. So as we mentioned, employee employers are required by law to contribute to your workplace pension when you do through automatic enrolment. Um, and you also benefit from upfront tax relief and tax-free investment growth once your money's in the pension. Now, as we mentioned, at the moment, those minimum total contributions, when you combine both the employer contribution and employee contributions with tax relief, is 8%. So 3% comes from your employer, 4% from you, and 1% via pensions tax relief on earnings between £6,240 and just over £50,000. Now, that's the minimum. Some firms will offer more generous terms than that. Under automatic enrolment rules, it's the employer who chooses the pension scheme on behalf of their employees. So some employers may offer you an alternative to the main pension scheme, like a self-invested personal pension, for example, but none of them are under any obligation to do that. And crucially, when it comes to this question, different pension schemes will receive your contributions in different ways, but in most cases, you should get the tax relief you're entitled to. Now, some employers may offer or may also offer to pay pension contributions on your behalf via what's known as salary sacrifice. Now, this involves giving up a portion of your salary with your employer instead paying you what's known as a non-cash benefit. So often you'll see this with cycle to work schemes and things like that. But in this case, it's a pension contribution that's your non-cash benefit. So that means you'll get your upfront tax relief, but you'll also reduce your employee and employer national insurance contributions as well. So there's a bit of an extra added benefit to you upfront there as a result of paying your pension contribution through salary sacrifice. And in some cases, if your employer is feeling particularly generous, they may share some or all of that national insurance benefit they receive with you. So you may get both your 
your, your NI saving and your employer's NI saving as well. Now, they don't have to do that, but lots of employers do do that as an incentive to go down that road. Now, one thing to bear in mind when considering salary sacrifice, because nothing's ever as straightforward as that, is yep. the impact it might have if you are made redundant. So if, you, if, you, if your salary is reduced, it's possible that your redundancy entitlement will be reduced as well. And also taking less salary, because that is what happens, your salary is reduced in return for that money going into your pension, um, could have also affect things like maternity and paternity pay, mortgage applications, and some state benefit allowances as well. So it's potentially a really good way to save yourself a little bit more national insurance on top of the tax benefits of pension saving. But as with all these things, you need to consider your own personal contributions and look at the different ways it might affect different entitlements. And if, if you're at all unsure, then it's worth going on the, the Money Helper website. That's the website backed by government that offers guidance or speaking to a regulated financial advisor if you have one. It's never straightforward, Tom, but that's why we get you to answer these questions <laughs> for us. Um, look, don't forget, if you've got any questions for Tom or for any of the team, then do drop them in on an email, podcast at ajbell.co.uk, or you can always hunt us out on social media. We will answer anything that you send us if we spot it. And next week, Dan and Laura are back in the hot seat and Danny's going to be speaking to Richard Sem from Pantheon Infrastructure about investing in the UK's digital infrastructure. Over this week, that's it. Thanks for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.